Okay, so this is my keynote lecture on the Enlightenment. And it starts with this particular slide, which I'm going to explain. All right, so my discussion of the Enlightenment actually starts with um, a little story about something that happened to me when I was doing my graduate work at the University of Hawaii at Manoa getting my graduate degree in the Foundations of Education. While I was doing that program, one of my thesis papers that I had to write uh, was on a topic uh, having to do with um, education and teachers, and I was trying to figure out what that topic was going to be. And I was walking home from school one day, and it came to me out of the dark evening sky. It arrived through divine light, um, and I started thinking, hmm, I wonder what kinds of assumptions teachers have about students when they come into the classroom. And on my way home, I kept thinking this through and thinking this through, and I started reflecting back on my own experience as a student and then uh, as a teacher. And the whole thing sort of opened up in front of me, and I realized that this was something that I could really write about. So I was excited because it was an interesting topic. So extensive research, one of the books that I read was called 10 Theories of Human Nature, uh, studied all these studies, all kinds of research and so on and so forth. And here's what emerged out of this. My thesis was that teachers in fact do come to the classroom with preset ideas about students and their nature. This was most especially true back in the 17 and 1800s when public education becomes uh, something that uh, is a part of our culture in the United States and uh, it's already a part of the culture of Europe. And the heavily in Protestant influenced teachers who came into the classroom, influenced by Martin Luther and John Calvin and their very rigorous notions of what faith was supposed to be and how hard you had to work to be a Christian person when, they, when these kinds of teachers arrived in the classroom, it appeared to me that what they were arriving with was an assumption about you, and that assumption was not a positive one. That basically when they came into the classroom, they thought that you were all pretty much rotten to the core. You're bad, you're rotten, you're a stinking little kid. And my job is not only to teach you content and skills, but it's to beat out of you your rottenness. And so I shall. And so if you study public education in the 1800s, you'll see that corporal punishment, physical punishment of students was quite common. And in fact, even up through the 1960s when I was in elementary school, it was still happening because I recall in the second, third, and fourth grade at Ben Parker Elementary in Kaneohe getting hit as a kid. You did something wrong, you chewed gum, you spoke up in class, you passed the note, you acted uh, bad in some way, and you came up to the front and your teacher said, stick your arm up and she'd take her metal ruler and she'd smack you on the back of your hand. And it hurt like the dickens. And it made me think twice about whether I would chew gum again. Makes me wonder whether we might want to bring some of these kinds of techniques of teaching back again, but I digress. So the idea was, I thought that perhaps her, that particular teacher, Mrs. Mew, fifth grade, that her assumption of the students was a negative one, that she believed that your nature 
was rotten and that that was part of her job was to uh, bring that out. This would be true of parents. This would be true of uh, anybody who's an authority figure in society. And so I started thinking more and more along those lines. And my research led me to a thesis that said there is a whole continuum of assumptions about human nature that people make, especially teachers when they come into the classroom. On the one extreme, you're rotten. On the other extreme, you're an angel. And usually, it tended to be all or nothing. So I would think you're all rotten. Or I would come in thinking my basic assumption about you is that you're angels and my job is to nurture you and to make you feel better about yourselves and that kind of thing. So it raises this initial question that we want to take down, which is, who are my teachers and what are their assumptions about me? You might even wonder that about me. Well. That's for you to think about, right? So in getting into this discussion then and working through my thesis, I was led to what you have up on screen right here, which is this painting. And it is the fall of Adam and the rise of original sin. So let me explain this to you real briefly. All right, so you guys all know the story. God creates the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day, on the sixth day, he creates man. And he finds that man is lonely. Adam is lonely. He needs a companion. So he takes the sixth rib of Adam and fashions that into woman. And he sets them out to live in the Garden of Eden. Kind of would connect you to what we're talking about on this blog conversation about the photographer and the Kayapo this notion of Eden, this perfect place, but under only one condition, that is, of this particular fruitful tree ye shall not eat. One condition, live in Eden, but don't do this. But of course, who arrives? Satan arrives. And Satan speaks into the ear of woman and says, what's up with that? You can't eat from this particular tree. Why would God deny that of you? And evil as the woman is, she then speaks into the ear of man and poisons his mind and convinces him to eat of the fruit. And God is angry. And God casts them out of Eden. And as they say, the rest is history. They have children. There's death. There's murder. There's the whole history of the world that comes out of Adam and Eve. But what happened in that moment was original sin. The original sin was the sin of Adam and Eve against God for not following God's will. And his will was, don't eat of this particular fruit. And of course, you know, it's just too tempting for me to say that you women have been doing that to us guys ever since. You caused the trouble, not us. But be that as it may. Okay. So why do I talk about original sin? Because in a time of very intense first Catholic religion and then Protestant religion and then both, teachers walking into the classroom may have this concept of original sin on their minds. That in fact, if I'm a highly religious Protestant person and who happens to be your teacher, that I might believe in this concept of original sin, which by the way, the sin was taken away by Jesus Christ who arrived and uh, lived and then was died. He, he was crucified. He took the sins of the world 
on himself rose to the right hand of the Father. And if you believe in him and you reject sin daily in your heart and you believe in him, then you are free from that original sin, but you have to believe in him. So the idea of original sin is just sitting out there. And teachers arriving in the classroom might think, believe that you are originally sinful. And so, wow, what a mandate I'm working under. I have to relieve her of that original sin, which leads me to some pretty harsh punishment if she continues to sin, misbehave, do whatever it is that she's going to do. It gets to be very interesting when you start looking at the way teachers approach in a classroom and, and how they view you. Um, I, I, would be, I would almost be remiss and not, I mean, imagine conversations amongst teachers out there in all the many schools and the lunchrooms and, and the meetings and things like that and what they're saying. And then later you might become a teacher and get to be a part of those conversations and it'll be fun. Okay? Anyway, the concept of original sin, and it gets us into the concept of human nature. There goes Adam and Eve. Cool, yeah? All right. Okay, so question. What is the nature of man? And what do we do with what we know about the nature of man? That's going to lead us into the enlightenment. Okay, so you want to look up on screen here, because the first arrival is this little baby. Okay, what is the nature of man? And then the second arrival is this little baby. Okay, and we look at this and we apply our rational thinking minds and we begin to wonder certain things about these children and who they are and what they'll grow up to be and, and how they'll act and so on and so forth. Okay, and this is all a preface to what the Enlightenment is all about. All right, the Enlightenment then, we get into it. Okay, so what was the Enlightenment? It's an intellectual movement in Europe in the 1700s, and it leads Europe, and eventually really the rest of the world, and, and we can say safely, to a whole kind of new world view. It's a completely different way of looking at things. As we come out of the medieval Middle Ages and through the Renaissance and through the scientific revolution and up into the Enlightenment and the age of absolutism is passing below us here with Louis XIV and all the other absolute monarchs of Europe. This movement begins to take shape and it really changes everyone's worldview. And the image that you're looking at here is one of these salons, usually hosted by women, in which intellectuals, the elite, uh, wealthy business people, the nobility, aristocrats would gather together and they would have intense discussions, just like we had yesterday, about all kinds of subjects, not the least of which is how can we reform and refine or make better the society and culture that we live in. This is the essence of the Enlightenment. This is what these people are talking about here. It's what we had yesterday. That conversation was really about making our society and culture better because we worked really hard to figure out whether someone who would have been accused of something, an abuse of power, uh, whether that was really the case or not. And there were all kinds of things that were flying around the room yesterday that connected us to the Enlightenment. Okay? All right. So the father of the Enlightenment is a philosopher named Immanuel Kant. And what he gives to us in the 1700s is essentially the motto of the Enlightenment, which is saupere aude, or have the courage 
to think for yourself. So in my vernacular, it would be, think for yourself, dude. So when you think about this, you have to come to a conclusion that that's really, that's really the motto of La Pietra. I mean, I know it's confidence soars and all of that, but in essence, what's happening in the classroom over and over and over again is us telling you, have the courage to think for yourself. That's the message that you get from that little print ad that you see now with Jordan Schroer. And she's holding that volleyball, and it says whatever it says, education beyond education. And she can think for herself, too. She can speak in public, too. And then the ad with Chloe on TV, uh, that 15-second ad that was running before Open House, in which she was doing a math problem on the board really fast, and then she was sitting at a table, and it said, and she'll change the world as well. The message is really clear. We're telling you, think for yourself. Have the courage to think for yourself. And this really comes from Kant, and it really is the motto of the entire enlightenment. And so we're going to build on that as we go through. OK, now, we can't really talk about the enlightenment without talking about the scientific revolution, because it's from the scientific revolution that we get the enlightenment. The enlightenment is a rational unpacking of life and a, uh, a process of, uh, of trying to figure out how to refine and reform and make better society. In order to do that in an organized way, enlightened thinkers looked to the scientific revolution for the method for doing this. And that's what happens for you every single day as you troop off to biology or chemistry or physics or, or, or math or geometry, whatever it is that you're going to in those sciences and maths. What you're doing is working with particular methods. And it's really the method that you're supposed to know as much as you're supposed to know the actual content of biology. It's the method of studying biology as much as the content of biology. In fact, the content may disappear. Likely it will, a large portion of it. But the method will stay with you. The method is the scientific method. Okay? So we look at the scientific method as the product of two fathers. One is Sir Francis Bacon, and the other is Rene Descartes. And we'll get to Descartes in a second. So first, we'll talk about Sir Francis Bacon. He's really the person who gives us this scientific method. And the method is based on observation and experimentation. So I'm not going to trust anything unless I can actually see it with my own eyes, or I can feel it, or smell it, or hear it in some way. And when I can do that, I'm going to repeat that process of hearing and smelling and seeing and, and so on and so forth. I'm going to repeat that over and over and over again in an experimental setting. And when I've gone through that process, I will then come to some sort of tentative conclusion. And I'll test again. And I'll keep going until I'm absolutely sure of what it is that I originally set out to do, which was to prove, for example, x, whatever x happened to be, my hypothesis. And it's Bacon who really gives us this notion of the testable hypothesis. I believe that this cell will divide in this particular way under these particular circumstances. And I won't believe that unless I'm, I'm actually able to see it for myself. Now, think about the extent to which you actually have to accept already tested data. You have a whole textbook in biology and a whole textbook in chemistry. Think about how much they're asking you to accept as already true as already concluded in the with the use of the scientific method. 
But it's Bacon who gives us this method in the beginning. Okay. All right, there goes Bacon. All right, now in between Bacon and Descartes, we have this phenomenal figure, Isaac Newton. And arguably, he's the most fam famous scientist of all, although now with all the discussion that we had about Galileo, he, Galileo might have risen in your mind as, you know, as infamous. But Isaac Newton, uh, he's the one, you say Isaac Newton, and you know what everybody says, right? Sitting under a tree, apple falls on his head, gravity. It's a little oversimplified, but Isaac Newton is really a key figure, if not because he was so humble, and because he was the one who sat out there and said, no, no, this is not me. I stand on the shoulders of giants, of all the scientists who went before me, Galileo, Kepler, Brahe, Copernicus, Ptolemy, the old Greek philo uh, philosopher and, and astronomer. So he, re he really sort of wants to build on that, but nevertheless, he is the most famous. And using the scientific method, he makes a range of discoveries, not the least of which is gravity, the law of gravity. And he really helps to inspire enlightenment thinkers to apply scientific thinking to people. And that it's possible for people and the society that they live in to get better if you just apply rational thinking to it, scientific thinking to it. So let's test a hypothesis. The hypothesis about the way humans behave is X, and we're going to observe over and over and over and over again. You recall the blog topic that we've been having about um, whether girls learn better at uh, all girls' schools, which resulted in my firing by Mrs. Hugo over there, right? I mean, that's based on a testable hypothesis that in fact that they do. And then of course they study and they look at all the results and they come up with a conclusion. The conclusion is published and then the debate begins, okay? All right, Isaac Newton. So enlightenment principles, we have to establish these enlightenment principles right from the very beginning. And these are absolutely crucial to the whole process. So enlightenment thinkers rejected organized religion. It wasn't that they were rejecting God. They weren't rejecting faith, but they were rejecting organized religion because they felt that organized religion was created by man. And man, religious man, is highly suspect and not rational. So they rejected organized religion. They rejected tradition. They rejected superstition. And what they embraced was independent thought. They thought that all of these things, tradition, superstition, uh, religion, limited independent thought. And they were trying to embrace independent thought. So here's the question for you right here. To what extent is my life still governed by tradition and superstition? So seriously, if you're the kind of person who walking down a sidewalk sees a black cat and you bolt for the other side of the street, you gotta stop for a minute and really think about how utterly irrational that is and how unenlightened that little moment was, right? Or walking under a ladder, I can't do that because something bad's gonna happen to me. All those super, just think about how much that drives you. Think about the Easter Bunny. Think about Santa Claus. Think about all the, the traditions and superstitions that are given to you by those wonderful educational films made by Disney. Uh, you know, 
You know what I'm talking about, right? All those great, wonderful educational films that Disney makes. And all, all the things that come out of that, right? I, I perpetuated uh, the tradition and the superstition of the Easter Bunny with my own daughter. And I did it in a, did I tell you this story already? No. no, okay, so it was a particularly cruel thing that my wife and I did. My daughter was here, she was eight. She had some doubts about the Easter Bunny. We went out to Easter brunch. We live 20th floor condo. We locked the door and we headed off, but my wife had given a friend a key. And that friend came in and put a big, huge Easter basket with lots of goodies on her bed. When we came home, we opened the locked door. She went in and was astonished to find the basket. She was so astonished that she went through this whole series of thoughts, wondering how could this have gotten here. And since she had seen us lock the door, there was no other conclusion for her to come to, except that the Easter Bunny had flown in over the balcony and put it there. It solidified the Easter Bunny for at least another year for her. Look at how easy it is to trick human beings. <laughs> yes, and you guys should laugh because I held uh, a little splinter in my hand and told you guys, uh, and you guys went for it for really, really like uh, two and a half minutes, right? Okay, so anyway, rejection of those kinds of things. Now, on the other hand, looking at it from the more positive, enlightenment principles include accepting knowledge only based on observation and logic and using reason to attain that knowledge, not faith. So you really have to think about the extent to which you're actually asked to accept knowledge on faith. Like for example, everybody just for one second, take a nice little chunk of your arm, your skin right here, and pinch really hard. No. Pinch hard. <laughs> Do you feel pain? Yes. What does that pain tell you? Yes, but what does it really tell you about you? That you have feelings. Does it tell you that you exist? Are you sure? You sure the pain's not an illusion of some sort? Are you sure that you're actually here? See, there's all these things that you do all the time that prove that for you over and over and over again. Okay? So, in the end, Enlightenment thinkers believed that science should be science, and religion should be religion. In other words, the church and religion shouldn't be in the business of science. They shouldn't be telling the public that the heavens are made of crystal spheres hanging from little strings. They shouldn't be saying that the earth is the center of the universe and the sun revolves around us. Let them get out of the business of science and let them be in the business of religion or of faith. Okay? All right. We have to move through so I can get all the way to that. Okay, so here are the Enlightenment thinkers that we're going to talk about, and I'll move through them fairly quickly. Okay, again, the second co-father of the scientific method is Rene Descartes. You really should be familiar with him if you're taking any science classes here at La Pietra. So he's this French philosopher and mathematician. He questioned the basis of his own knowledge. He went beyond just pinching his skin he didn't want to accept he didn't want to accept his own being just based on a on a on a pain sensation and so he thought his way through to the idea that if he could actually even have a thought about this that he must exist 
So therefore, the phrase cogito ergo sum, in Latin, I think, therefore I am. This is the gift from Descartes. And so the application of rational thought proves the existence of the being and frees the being to continue to shape and reshape and refine and make better the world around him. Okay? That's Rene Descartes. All right, now where's all this thinking going on in these salons? And these salons are populated by the French term for a philosopher, the philosophe. And this Madame de Pompadour is one of the famous women who hosted these salons. She would literally invite all of these philosophes to come and talk and they would have intense discussions about the nature of man and what is the best kind of government and this particular scientific discovery, what does it mean and so on and so forth. Every kind of thing that you ever talk about here in any kind of setting, it's almost like La Pietra itself is one giant salon because you come here every day and you start talking about things. So these gatherings of aristocrats put out new ideas and new theories and these new theories were constantly being debated and reformed and changed and re-theorized again. And you've got what's going on here is, a, is like a pot coming to a boil. It's, it's an absolute bubbling up of intellectual and rational activity. Um, and it's going to have an explosive effect on society, not the least in the French Revolution, which would overturn everything. Same with the American Revolution that precedes the French Revolution. So, Enlightenment thinkers attend these salons, and out of these salons come these amazing new ideas. My thesis is that the current salon is actually Starbucks or the various coffee shops around town. You want to test that hypothesis, go and sit down one night with nothing to do except to drink a cup of coffee or something, and just listen to what's going on around you. Every morning I'm parked at 5.30 at this Starbucks on Kapahulu to do my grading and other activities and all of that. And every morning at 5.45, a group of philosophes, and actually they're, they're economists, and the term for that was the physiocrats, they sit in the corner. There's five of them every single morning. For at least an hour, they sit and they talk about the stock market. And they talk about whether it's up or down. And they talk about President Obama and his policies. And it's really intense. And it's, like, it's so normal now that I actually never really hear anything. In the beginning, they were very distracting. But that's like a salon happening. Do they actually make a difference? I don't know. I know one of them is teaching economics at UH. So clearly he makes a difference because he's a professor that's having an effect on people. Right? You get where I'm going with that? Okay. All right. Salons. Bye-bye, Madame de Pompadour. Okay. Another of the great philosophers was Voltaire. And you have already dealt with Voltaire because he was a commentator on Louis XIV. Um, he is arguably the most famous of these philosophers if only because he was such a wit with the pen. He spoke with his pen and he made things happen with his pen. He's not a person who's working with guns or germs or steel. He's working with the tip of a quill. And that, that quill, out of that quill would come ink and that ink would say things that would change all of Europe. Okay. So, as a poet, as a playwright, as a philosopher, as a writer of books, he has an enormous influence on Europe. And what he did was he attacked the relics, 
This is interesting because that was a relic that I held up in front of you that you believed in for whatever amount of time you believed in it. He attacked this kind of relic thinking that there must be a crown of thorns for sale somewhere uh, in Europe. But he took it to a much broader level and he attacked relic thinking. Anybody who was thinking from the past, unwilling to accept change and progress, he attacked with his pen. And sometimes he did it under his own name, sometimes under a nom de plume where he would assume some other name. But he was absolutely nasty with his pen. He could truly attack. And I think that in many ways we have to take lesson from that. I recall when I first came to La Pietra about a year after I got here, um, there was some kind of physical altercation up on the tennis court up there. And I found out fairly quickly that it was two girls who had been literally voltairing each other on Zanga. They had been hurling insults at each other and finally decided they couldn't stand and had to take it out physically on the tennis court up there. That's when the faculty became aware that there was this thing called Zanga that we suddenly had to pay attention to. I was up there going, hello, there are sixth graders running around in this virtual environment with 30-year-olds. Let's pay attention. Uh, and so, so on and so forth, right? But, but you recall that when we started blogging at the beginning of the year, do you remember how much I said, or how intensely I said, be careful of tone. Don't use caps. Why, do you use, why not? Because caps are shouting. Questions can hurt. Words can hurt. This is the legacy of Voltaire, the pen. And think back to the connection between Voltaire and Martin Luther, who with his pen changed the world. I wonder if your pen, or really your fingers, will change the world in some way, shape, or form. I already know that there are La Pietra graduates out there whose keyboards are changing the world. Absolutely. You should find out about them. Okay. Off we go. Now, the big bombshell that hits Europe is the arrival of Dennis Diderot's Encyclopedia. So you recall Burke saying at the end of his film on the uh, Printing Transforms Knowledge that it was possible to hold the mind of a man in your hand because the mind of that man was in a book. Hold up your history of knowledge. She's holding up the mind of Charles Van Doren there. Now imagine an encyclopedia as being thousands of minds all condensed together in one book. Wow, what a bombshell this book was. That you could walk around with the total accumulation of knowledge. Took 20 years for him to write it in one book. And now look at what's in front of you. You have access to hundreds of encyclopedias right there in front of you. And the craziest one of all is Wikipedia because that one is matrixed. It's hyperlinked, which means you can go off in a thousand different directions like we did that day, right? So the amount of knowledge that's available to you is literally you're carrying it in this little piece of plastic right here. This is Dennis Diderot's encyclopedia taken to the ultimate level. It could even be smaller than this. All it has to do is have a wireless connection. Mm. And then you have access to Questia, where you can get more information than it would be possible to assume in a hundred lifetimes. Quite amazing, okay? So this is Dennis Diderot's encyclopedia. It's a major achievement of philosophers who've been thinking for a very long time. It takes 20 years to complete. And it's done by Diderot and um, Alembert. And of course, when it arrives, 
it's banned by the Catholic Church. So you go, oh, okay, well, here we go again, right? As soon as any compendium of knowledge arrives, it's banned by the church because it represents a threat to that traditional way of thinking. If the church said that the heaven was made of crystal spheres that were swaying back and forth up there, that's what created the lights, and it turns out that that's not true, well, the only way to deal with that is to ban the book. So very important uh, uh, bombshell that arrives in Europe and really starts to change uh, Europeans' um, conceptions of knowledge itself. Okay, now we're going to shift gears for just a second here into the topic or the theme of religion. We have to ask ourselves, were all of these Enlightenment thinkers non-religious? Well, yes, they rejected organized religion. But as I said before, it wasn't that they weren't faithful. It wasn't that they didn't believe in God. So a rational mind that is skeptical of religion is going to start working on that problem. And the problem has to have a solution. The solution is, how can I be faithful and believe in God and still be a rational thinker here on earth? And here's the solution that arrives. And this is important because the founding, many of the founding fathers of our country, Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Jay, these were deists. And we need to know what these deists are. So here's the solution to the problem of God, the deists. So the solution is we reject organized religion, but we still believe in God. That's point number one. Point number two is if God previously was the sole source of morality, then how is it that we are going to be moral if we don't believe in an organized church, but we still believe in God. So what you have to do is you have to believe that man can come to morality by himself, that you can walk out of this classroom and faced with a moral situation, can actually make the right decision without God telling you what is right and what is wrong. So you walk out of this classroom and look at what's outside. Look, everybody turn and look what's outside the classroom. Backpacks. The immoral thing to do would be to take somebody's iPod and walk off with it. The moral thing to do is to just keep right on going. If God's not telling you that it's wrong to take somebody's iPod, well then how did you come to that conclusion? What the deists believe is that you could come to that conclusion all by yourself, that there's something wrong about doing that, okay? That's step number two. But that still doesn't solve the problem of what God is. What is God according to the deists? Okay, so here we come to this concept of the great watchmaker. Look up on screen. Here's God. Okay? Now, before you laugh, think about this. Here's what they believed. God made everything. Pretty complicated when you look at it. By the way, we're way, way in front of Charles Darwin and the evolution of species and the whole notion of the, the, you know, the Earth is millions of years old and so on. We're, this is all far in the future. So here we have God, the watchmaker. He makes the universe and it's like a Rolex. And he winds it up and then he walks away. Where does that leave man? To explore through rational scientific thought the universe itself and how it works. You're literally exploring God's handiwork. And it would be possible, let's say that the first image was this watch right here, which is a fairly cheap uh, long swatch. 
it'd be possible to turn this watch into this watch, a Rolex. You can make life better if you apply your mind to it. But what has been released here is God's involvement in everyday life. Very important. When God's not involved in everyday life, it frees man up to do what he will on this earth to make life better. This is deist thinking. It's highly rational, it's secular, but it still acknowledges that providence or God exists and that there are gifts from God that came originally. We just have to discover them. And as you'll see, there's a lot that we're going to, uh, that we're going to discover. Okay. Get the pun right here. <laughs> you guys should do it. Okay, here we go. All right, now we get into the three thinkers that are part of the symposium that you're going to be working on. Okay. And first, we're going to deal with Thomas Hobbes. Okay, so he lives from 1588 to 1679. He's an Englishman. And he's living right through the age of the absolute monarchs of England. And he's watching and seeing what's going on. And basically, he comes to a very certain set of conclusions about human nature and about what is the best form of government. So he comes into the picture and sees all of you and says, look at the record of human history. Oh my God, what a mess. Nothing but war, devastation, awfulness, life, in the state of nature is short and brutish and awful. And that human's nature is rotten to the core. Now, what do we do to get out of the state of nature? In order to come out of the state of nature and live together as a society, we need authority to control our passions because we're basically driven by passion. And that passion causes death and destruction and pain and suffering, making life short and brutish. And so his idea of the right form of authority is one that's intensely strong because that's what it takes to keep you people from killing each other. So as I said to A Block this morning, imagine if I lock the doors and I leave and you're all in here together and we'll put A Block in here together so there's 19 of you. You can't leave. You have a little water in the corner. You have a little food in the corner. What would happen in that state of nature? Hobbes projected that it would be pretty quick, that moment when you began to fall and get ugly with each other, fall on each other, and steal water from each other and do horrible things to each other, that would happen fairly quick. So what would be necessary would be for me to come back into the picture and exert ultimate authority. The basic assumption of human nature is one of negativity. It's one that you're born in, uh, in, a, in a brutal state and you live in a brutal state unless you're controlled by an authority. Okay, that's Thomas Hobbes. Okay, then we look at John Locke. John Locke, on the other hand, thought that you and all of us were born moral. We were born basically good. But he also thought that we were born with a tabla rasa, in Latin, a blank slate. So he believed that humans' history, their development as individuals and as a people, is really a product of the environment writing on that blank slate. It's like a whiteboard right here. Your mind is a whiteboard, and the environment writes code on that whiteboard, and that's how you turn out to be what you turn out to be. 
Okay? So you want to think through what that means as you consider him as we go forward. So Locke is really important because of his initial positive assumption about the nature of man. But he also delivers a number of gifts to us which are crucial. Okay, so, but we're gonna, before we do that, we're going to pause for a moment. Now, just because we started into Hobbes and Locke, look back up on screen. So again, we're going to ask, what is the nature of man? There's a word missing here. And what do we do with what we know about the nature of man? Are their slates blank? Do these babies have an essential nature? Or will the environment determine who they turn out to be? Okay. I wonder if there's, I, I would, maybe I would do a scientific study. I would put each image up there and I would have some kind of laser that would track your eye movement. And I would try to figure out whether your eye was drawn to one baby or the other. And if that would tell me something about who you are. If you're drawn to the angry baby, then you must be angry. If you're drawn to the angelic baby, you must be angelic by your nature. I don't know. Anyway, there we go. And you see the angry baby disappeared with that particular animation of the, you know, and then the angelic baby, whatever. Okay. All right. Back to John Locke. So John Locke's um, treatise is called The Two Treatises of Government. And in it, he lays out this idea of natural rights. So what is it that government does? Government protects your natural rights. Where do those natural rights come from? From God, that's fine. He was able to see that as an original creation, but he was seeking to understand and take apart and refine what those natural rights are. So everyone, every human being is born with these natural rights. What's the most basic? The right to life. The most basic natural right is the right to life. That your life cannot be taken from you without due process or just cause. What would be another natural right? The right to speak. I have the right to speak. What's another natural right? The right to my property. Nobody can take my property from me without just cause. And if this starts to sound a little familiar to you, it should, because enshrined in our Declaration of Independence is Locke's concept of life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Thomas Jefferson would change one word in that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Interesting. You might do an investigation as to why that change was made. Okay. So what is the role of government? To protect those rights. So you're no longer the subject of a king. The king is your subject. The authority figure works for you to protect your rights because your rights might be taken away by somebody else. Like if I were to take this computer. Well, that wouldn't be a good case because that's my computer anyway, isn't it? But if I were to take her computer from her, of course she would react to that. And strongly she would react to that. Okay. Off we go. Okay, then the third person is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He also starts from a place of morality in his philosophizing on society and government. And he believes that people are born moral and they're born good. But unlike Hobbes, they absolutely disagreed. And unlike Locke, he believed that a minimal amount of authority was needed for people to live together in this concept of a social contract. So just for a second, I'd like you to uh, 
turn to the person next to you, turn to the person next to you right now and shake hands and hold on. Hold on, just hold it firmly for a second. Don't shake, just hold it, do it, do it, okay? What you, and say to that other person, I agree, I agree. to live in society, with you. There you go. That's a social contract. You've shaken hands on it. So listen, listen. If the, if the two of you have just made that contract, if, if Mariah takes Eleanor's computer, that's a shattering of the social contract. You see how important this contract is, right? So the social contract allows for minimal authority. It would mean, for example, that he would think that it would be possible for all authority to be taken away here at La Pietra and that you guys could actually live and work and study here by yourselves. It's a debatable idea and that's why we're getting into this debate, okay? And by the way, he believed that education was a key component to the social contract. Otherwise, people wouldn't know what the contract is unless they were educated to it. Okay, now I'm gonna speed up a little bit here because we have to cover a number of um, other philosophs who are important uh, so we're just going to sort of take a quick look at them. They're covered pretty extensively in a textbook. First, there's Baron de Montesquieu. He's this French uh, nobleman and philosopher, and he's the one in his Spirit of the Laws who gives us, one sec, he gives us this idea of the separation of powers. If you allow for a concentration of power in one place, then you're setting yourself up for potential abuse of power. If you separate power and have power here and power here and power here, power checks power and the people benefit when power checks other power. And that's enshrined in our own system of government where we have a court system, a legislative system, and an executive power. And all three check and balance each other, right? So let's say, for example, the president during wartime wants to limit free speech because he doesn't want people objecting to the war. So he convinces Congress to pass a law. This has happened three times in American history now. Convinces Congress to pass a law limiting free speech in times of war. Law gets challenged in front of the courts. The courts say that's not according to the Constitution and they throw the law out. Power checks power, checks and balances. That's how you remain free, okay? All right, that's Montesquieu. <clears throat> so we're going to pause for just a moment and talk about women. Um, Mary Wollstonecraft is one of those Enlightenment thinkers who begins to change the lives of women by positing the idea that women can be educated, they're capable of being educated, and when they're educated, they can participate fully in society, and that women really fully educated should be equal to men in society. She had a back-and-forth argument with Rousseau who didn't believe that women should be educated, uh, that went on for years. So she's a really pivotal person, and there's actually more to say about her um, as she disappears and then comes back into view again, that during the French Revolution, when the French mimicked what we had done with our Declaration of Independence, they wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, that's is a shortened verma, verb, version of it. She wrote her own version of it called A Vindication of the Rights of Women. She noticed in the Declaration of the Rights of Man that there was no mention of women in there. 
And in fact, there's no mention in our own Constitution of the equality of women. And in fact, the Equal Rights Amendment to our Constitution never passed in this country, which is why you're getting paid 76 cents for every man's dollar. Still, you should be outraged about that. Probably you're not even aware that that's the case. But there you go, the vindication of the rights of women. Okay, That's Mary Wollstonecraft. All right. So Wollstonecraft emphasizes education. Women's, she becomes the sort of mother of the women's rights movement. She's the one who's going to inspire people like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth, uh, uh, Katie, Elizabeth, Katie, Elizabeth Stanton and Carrie Catman Chat and uh, Susan, I'm sorry, and uh, Alice Paul. These are all the famous women who finally got you the vote in 1919 in this country. She's really the inspiration for this. All right. Now, I know I'm moving kind of fast right here. We're just going to talk for a few minutes about what's happening with the monarchies in Europe. So the question is, would the monarchs remain as absolute monarchs, or would they change as the Enlightenment movement begins to take shape? And the answer to that is yes, they would have to change. They couldn't stay absolute because there was too much reform in the air. People were going to have to be a little bit different. And your text takes care of pretty much everything uh, with regard to these enlightened monarchs, but I just want to uh, point out a couple of them to you. These are people who are very receptive to new enlightenment ideas. They're instituting new laws and practices, like for example, abolishing serfdom, that a peasant had to be tied to the land, that he could be free to go and work as a wage laborer. That kind of reform was happening. But there's a couple of them that I'd like to point out. One of them is Joseph II. He's the great patron of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And I'll show you a clip from Amadeus next week. Um, so at the same time that this enlightenment is beginning to take shape, there's also an explosion in music. There's already been an explosion in art. That's the Renaissance and the Baroque. But in the time of the Enlightenment, this is the time of Handel, of Bach, of Mozart, of Beethoven, these fantastic and amazing composers. And it's these enlightened monarchs that we argued about yesterday who were paying for this fantastic compositional work to be done. And we're going to take a quick look at Joseph II in, with regard to that particular clip. And if we have time at the end, I'll tell you a quick story about Catherine the Great because she's one of my favorites. Uh, but I have to make sure I can get to the end here. So she's a Russian ruler, and she was very well educated in Enlightenment works. And she really brings Russia out of the Dark Ages, out of the medieval ages, and brings them into the uh, modern age. And she westernizes Russia. I'll get back to her at the end if there's time. And then there's Joseph II. He's the patron of Amadeus Mozart. And those are his various reforms, and you can pick those up when you uh, open up your um, keynote on your own. Okay. Okay, moving on. So the American Revolution, as we come down to the end, would the Enlightenment impact the American Revolution? Well, in fact, you could say that the Enlightenment gave birth to the American Revolution, that a bunch of colonists doing business in the Americas on the eastern seaboard would come to the conclusion that it was time to separate from the greatest 
power on earth, Great Britain, is a remarkable thing. And the way that they reasoned themselves to that is going to be the subject of your intense study next year in US or APUS. And so what you have to remember is that the American Revolution comes first. The French Revolution comes after and is many ways inspired by the American Revolution. And both are influenced by Locke, by this notion that the government serves the people and not the other way around. They're inspired by Montesquieu, who believes in this notion of the, the checks and balances of power. And the seminal document regarded by people all around the world is truly, the, if not the greatest, one of the greatest documents, expressions of human freedom and liberty and equality ever, is the Declaration of Independence written in 1776, penned by Thomas Jefferson, amended by Ben Franklin and John Adams, and finally put out in its final form. Uh, there's a facsimile up there, read all around the colonies two years into the Revolutionary War at a moment of low morale, fired everybody up, and they were able to defeat the British and so on. The rest is history for us. Okay. So here's the U.S. Constitution in 1787 being written. It's a reflection of this concept of the separation of powers because we established three bodies of power rather than one. The checks and balances are evident in the way that they constructed our national government. And those rights, those national rights that John Locke articulated, the right to speak, the right to practice your religion, the right to be free from an unreasonable search and seizure of your property, all of those natural rights are there in the first amendments to the Constitution that allowed it to be ratified called the Bill of Rights. And we should know them. You should know them. If you're driving down Pocky with your sister and she's driving too fast and gets pulled over by a cop, that's fine. But if the cop says to her, I want to search your trunk, she should stand up and say, the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution says you don't have that right. And he cannot search that trunk unless he has a warrant that establishes probable cause that you have either a dead body or crystal meth in there or whatever in your trunk. It cannot be done. If you say, okay, you're simply giving up your right to an authority who is abusing that power. That's what the Bill of Rights is about, and that's why you should really know them. Okay? All right, so the Enlightenment ultimately leads to the French Revolution, and I'm not going to linger on this slide because that's the subject of our film that we're going to watch. And it leads to the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which establishes this concept of liberty, equality, and fraternity. This is uh, very similar to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is a facsimile of this. And again, we're going to get into this in great detail with the film, so we're not going to worry too much about it. So the last slide. And it'll actually give me a minute to tell you my story about um, Catherine the Great. So what is the legacy of the Enlightenment? It is possible to use rational, even scientific thinking to create a government that works for the people. It's possible to make government better. Another legacy of the Enlightenment is to say it's possible to use rational and scientific thinking to make society better. All these things are possible. You just have to apply 
your mind in a courageous way to go out. And this is the message that comes through. Actually, I, I, I should actually show you. Maybe I will. I'll show it to you next week, this 15-second um, ad that was running on TV last week. It's really a piece of enlightened thinking. It's trying to paint La Pietra as an enlightened school because it said she can do math and she's also going to change the world. How? Using the courage of her intelligence. And that the key to all of this is education. Because you can't really be enlightened unless you're educated. I've had this terrific debate going on in APUS all year long about whether or not stupid people should be allowed to vote. And I don't mean stupid people in a nasty way. I mean people who drop out of high school. If you drop out of high school, why the hell should you be allowed to vote? Why should my life be determined by somebody who couldn't make it through high school? I've been nagging them about this question all year long. Shouldn't you be educated when you walk into the voting booth? That's the kind of enlightened discussion that happens in which you debate the rights and privileges of voting. So here you have the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternity. You have the signing of the American uh, Constitution. And here's you. This is you studying all of this stuff. Why? Because it's what makes you free. Studying the Enlightenment makes you free. And if you feel that your freedoms are being impinged upon, then you need to act. What Locke said was that it is the duty of the public to overthrow or to throw out an oppressive government. That the government is created for the people, by the people, of the people. And if it becomes oppressive, the people have a right and a duty to throw it out. That's why you need to study this so hard. Because your freedom depends on it. Okay? All right, so now I get to tell my quick story about Catherine the Great. You don't have to take notes on this. It's just a fun kind of story. Why do I love Catherine the Great so much? Okay, so I'm a little kid. I think I may have been five or six. You remember the, you guys don't remember, but up on Wiley Avenue, the Queen Theater up there, that was the theater in town. There were three theaters. There was the Cinerama, where Checkers is down by Kalakaua. There was the Kuhio Theater, which was in Waikiki, and there was the Queen Theater. And my father took us to see a film, a four-hour film, called Catherine the Great, all nine of us, me only being five years old. Oh, my God, watching a four-hour film about a European monarch poke me in the eye. I would rather be dead, except for one scene in that film. Now, Catherine the Great had, like Louis XIV, a prodigious appetite for men. So. There's this scene in which she has a bathtub. She's in her bathtub, and the bathtub is as big as this room. And at one end of the bathtub is one of her, what's the opposite of a mistress? I don't know. A, a mister, right? <laughs> one, of her, one of her lovers, okay. He's down at the other end of the bathtub, and the bathtub has all this soap suds, you know? <laughs> and what's going on is a naval battle. There's actually real ships, little model ships, with real cannon that were shooting real shot. I mean, like little ball bearings. So there's this massive naval battle going on in this. Catherine the Great and, this, and her lover are just screaming, laughing their heads off. Because there's this I mean, smoke billowing everywhere, fire, the whole thing. Now that, to me, as a five-year-old, was an impressive scene. So my brother, David, who's four years older than me, light bulb goes on. 
So we go home, and sometime later, my mom goes off to the store, and my brother David and I, we go into her bathtub down at her end. We fill it up with water, <laughs> lots of suds. And my father's a doctor, right? So we take newspaper, you know, he pulled the newspaper to make a little, you know, hat, and you turn the, and it's a boat. So, and my father has tongue depressors, rubber bands, and cotton balls, and there's kerosene for those lamps that we had outside. So we create catapults with cotton balls soaked in kerosene, and we start a naval battle in the tub. <laughs> But we're, we're like foot to foot because this thing's only like six feet long, right? So there's, they were everywhere. They were flying out of the tub and everything. We were screaming and laughing and all that. We didn't hear my mom come home from the store. So suddenly the door opens and we freeze. And my mom's looking down and half the bathroom's on fire. And, you know, there's, you know, kerosene burning on my shoulder and the whole thing and all that. So the great part about this story was, and this is why I'll never forget Catherine the Great, is that my mom, do you remember when I showed you my heraldry and my mom was the bridge over troubled waters in the beginning? This is how wonderful my mother was. She never told my father. Wow, what a saint. If she told my father, I'd be dead. I would never have made it past five years old. He would have killed me, I'm sure. So she's a beautiful woman for having not told him I escaped with my life on that one. My brother and I were eternally grateful for, to her for not doing it. Anyway, that's why I remember Catherine the Great. That's the Enlightenment. Thank you. We made it just on time. <laughs>